What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Winemakers in Napa Valley are subject to stringent local regulations on how they grow their vines. So stringent that one vintner is taking the county to court. It's more than sour grapes. The lawsuit suggests just how unfriendly to business local officials can be. And commercial tuna fishing involves bait on hooks spread along kilometers of line. But sharks and rays often end up as part of the haul, threatening their populations. A tiny cylinder may be the ingenious answer to protecting those species. First up, though. For many Chinese citizens, the sight of COVID testing centers being dismantled must be jarring. For nearly three years, the Communist Party's narrative has been that COVID is dangerous, deadly, and that the party's plan was smarter, safer. That narrative is changing as the strict lockdowns, endless testing, and rigorous quarantining are being wound down, and fast. That could simply be a response to recent, shockingly defiant protests. But the truth is, China always needed to find a way out of its economically crippling zero-COVID stance. It's found a quick and a dangerous one. Restrictions in China are now being dismantled with extraordinary rapidity, given what we understand to be the state of readiness in China. James Miles is our China writer at large. People had long been expecting some kind of roadmap out of uh, the country's draconian zero-COVID policy, but nothing like this, which has involved really ripping apart the main fabric of the policy without actually announcing formally an end to it, and without really getting in place all the systems necessary in order to ensure the minimum number of deaths as a result of an inevitable rise of COVID infections. So what we've just seen uh, is the scrapping of the country's tracing app, which everybody had to use, much to the inconvenience of many people. If you've been to a city or a place in a city which was close to where somebody had been infected, it was almost impossible to travel. So this app has now gone, and that follows a series of other measures, which include scrapping a requirement that people go off into government quarantine centres, mass testing, and also widespread lockdowns are are, are no longer supposed to take place. And is this a reflection of a a reduction in danger, a, a smaller number of cases? Uh, Certainly not. No, it follows a surge in the number of uh, infections. But what the authorities are now saying is that the current mutation of the Omicron virus, and that's the COVID-19 causing variant that is now prevalent in China, 
it is simply not as much a risk, and therefore the country can afford uh, to relax these measures because far fewer people will get seriously ill as a result. But nonetheless, what many people are clearly worried about is that the health system, even given that, is not capable of coping with a wave of infections. And that's surely happening, even though the official numbers uh, show that the number of cases are coming down. That's because they're just not testing as many people now. So if there is this question around readiness, it's easy to assume then that the, the government is simply responding to those protests that we saw in China a couple of weeks ago. Well, I think those protests would have been a factor. These were very rare. We hadn't seen anything on this scale since the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989. So I think the government was certainly worried that the alternative or one alternative, which was to enforce zero COVID even more strictly, would have been met with an even greater public backlash. They were also clearly worried about the economy, and they had been signaling that for some weeks, even months. And that balance was becoming increasingly tricky. So I think that was probably uh, one of their main uh, worries, if not the biggest. So how is the government presenting this then, given the centrality of the whole zero COVID policy? They're struggling a bit, I think, in terms of messaging. They don't want to announce an end to the zero COVID policy, but it's not a term they're using anymore in their public propaganda. What they hope is, I think, that people will get used to a new message, which is that the government has done its best over the past uh, three years since the pandemic began, that it has saved a huge number of lives with the zero COVID policy, that the virus has now mutated in a way that makes it uh, much more difficult to control, and that with uh, the levels of pandemic prevention measures that had previously been in force, even in spite of that, uh, infections were bound to rise. And so now they have no choice but to learn to adapt to this new reality in a different kind of way. So that's the public messaging. But what they're not explaining is why over the past few months, uh, they have not really accelerated the uh, vaccination program, why so many uh, vulnerable people in particular remain under-vaccinated or simply not vaccinated at all, and why there are so few intensive care unit beds available in hospitals. So how are people responding to that, that fairly dissonant message after all this time? Well, this is very difficult for many Chinese people to get used to. They had been told that the virus was extremely dangerous and not just to vulnerable people. Uh, there were the effects of long COVID uh, to consider as well. And uh, although people, of course, uh, resented the very strict pandemic controls they'd been subjected to, there's still a great deal of concern about uh, how serious infection with the virus is. One 18-year-old uh, Beijing resident said he was afraid of getting infected, uh, but really uh, had no choice but to go out and run his errands. Uh, but another said he thought infections would go up, certainly, but the experience from other countries showed people could recover within seven to ten days. And you can tell that there's still a lot of concern out there, even though people now have freedoms that they really haven't enjoyed for the past three years. They're not, however, taking advantage of this in great numbers. Um, restaurants are quiet, uh, streets are half empty, 
shopping malls with very few people in them. This doesn't look like a country that's really enjoying the end of zero COVID and the end of endless draconian lockdowns. And what about levels of vaccination, the the means by which so many other countries have managed to, to get out of their own zero COVID policies? Well, the government is now belatedly stressing the need for people to get vaccinated. Many people, of course, had been vaccinated already, but a very large proportion of those have not received a vaccine in the past few months. And uh, given that Chinese vaccines are considered less effective than the uh, ones that are in most common use in advanced economies, risk is now that in spite of fairly high vaccination rates across the general population, the effects of those vaccines have largely waned off. And among the elderly in particular, uh, they have a problem. Only about 40% of people over 80 have received three shots of the Chinese vaccines. And that is considered really a, a minimum to achieve their full effectiveness. And so they are now stressing that uh, the elderly, the vulnerable, really, really need to uh, to get vaccinated. And that is going to be uh, difficult. There is a great deal of vaccine hesitancy among older people. That's in part because uh, they were told early on in this pandemic that the vaccines had not been fully tested uh, among older people, that the uh, possible side effects weren't fully known. And so there was a great deal of concern initially and shared by Uh, Chinese experts, uh, that the vaccine may cause harmful effects uh, among some older people. Experts have now concluded that they are, in fact, very safe. But there is still a great deal of hesitancy among the old. And it will be difficult, I think, persuading many of them to get the jab. So in all the times we've talked about this on the show, the risk has been that this policy might change and then COVID would just be allowed to, to let rip through the population. Is, is that what we would expect to happen? Is that what we'll see over coming weeks and months? Well, it'll be very hard to stop. There is a belief that uh, as long as uh, people avoid social contacts, uh, that they are at much less risk. And while that may be true, they still do have to see their carers, their relatives, And so those risks are growing for elderly people. And hesitancy, um, as far as we can tell, is not decreasing. It may be that as infections grow, older people get more nervous and uh, we see the take up increasing along with that. Uh, But in the meantime, hospitals will be flooded with uh, cases as well as uh, cases involving other conditions, not least uh, seasonal flu. It's going to be a very, very rough ride for China in the months ahead. Thanks very much for joining us, James. Thank you very much, Jason. For a much closer look at what's going on in China, check out our sister show, Drum Tower. Every week, my colleagues Alice Su and David Rennie give you an insider's view of a country that's notoriously hard to read. Look for Drum Tower later today and every Monday, wherever podcast transmission rates are high. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
I met Jason Woodbridge, who's the founder of 100 Acre, one of Napa's most famous wines, at his winery in the hills in Calistoga in northern Napa. Alexander Suwich Bass is our senior correspondent for politics, technology, and society. It's a family business. No, I started this, but... Well, but it's a, a true family enterprise. He named 100 Acre as a tribute to A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh and has achieved a lot of 100-point wines, but the day I met him, he was not in good spirits. So down here, there's all the lush vineyards. Beautiful. And then where the fire came, just because of the wind, you have a few of these trees, they survived. He gave me a tour of the grounds to show the effects of the devastating glass fire, which raged in 2020 and burned about 70,000 acres in Northern California. And on certain spots, like this hillside of mine, the wind was blowing so furiously that the fire burned at a super high temperature and it Mm. ripped the trees apart. I was meeting Mr. Woodbridge not just to see what the fire had done to his farm. In October, he sued Napa County for what he calls administrative overreach. In what sense? According to Mr. Woodbridge, county officials are asserting authority where he says they have none. They are stretching the rules to get involved in different fights with landowners about what's happening on their properties, taking a long time to get back to them, demanding reports uh, and studies that they have no business requiring. But there's also a very specific spat. About a year after the glass fire, Mr. Woodbridge decided to remove the charred stumps of trees that had been on his hillside and try an experiment in dry farming. He put bottomless pots on the ground and planted young vines in them, hoping that the roots would go down into the soil. He has said that he was not moving earth and therefore did not need to get a permit from Napa to do this on his land. But I'm guessing that Napa County didn't agree. Exactly. Napa said that he had moved earth and that he was putting the soil at strong risk of erosion, which could hurt different species that are nearby, including insects and fish. They also say that to move any earth, he needed to get a permit. And so there's a quibble about whether he needed to acquire a permit and whether he needed to do an environmental review before doing any type of experiment on his land. This is unlikely to be resolved quickly. It's going to be a long legal fight, and Mr. Woodbridge says he's up for it. They are either going to change the hillside ordinance here, change their arbitrary ways, change their overreach. They're going to have to change everything. In other words, the entire county bureaucratic government is going to have to be changed. Otherwise, I'm going to take this all the way to the Supreme Court. And you know what? I can afford to do it, and I will. And I'm also going to guess this is not the first time he has locked horns with the county. That is right. In 2006, he was criminally charged by Napa's district attorney for not getting a required permit to produce wine. And even though the charges were dropped, he still has very strong feelings about it. So he made it look like he's getting real hard with the millionaire winemakers in the valley, right? And really slammed me in the press. 
And, you know, to this very day, there's a Wine Spectator article sitting out there saying, I was charged with a criminal misdemeanor, and people see that. Well, they don't write an article saying that the charge was dropped. But there's a bigger picture here. The lawsuit also speaks to concerns about the business climate in one of the world's most famed wine regions, which attracts about 3.8 million tourists a year. Napa has become emblematic of broader concerns about California, which is famous for overregulation and having a lot of restrictions, including environmental ones, and creating an atmosphere that's less friendly to business. And that's why people are seeing a lot of headlines about businesses moving to places like Texas, Florida, and Arizona. It's much harder for a rooted business like wine to move. And so instead, you're getting quiet grumbles um, and sometimes louder ones like the 100-acre complaint about the business environment. And that's why this lawsuit is really interesting. It's because regulatory overreach and the business climate is just one of the many challenges facing winemakers in Napa today. They are facing the risk of fire, prolonged drought, the lack of insurance coverage for fire risk, and of course, the a decline in tourism in the wake of COVID-19. And so they're grappling with a lot and they feel like regulators should be supportive rather than harmful of their business. So why do you suppose Napa's officials are being so controlling? They may well feel pressure from environmentalists to prevent too much development. That could lead to traffic congestion or soil erosion or loss of habitat. There may also be nostalgia for a time when Napa was more rural and less developed overall. And you see this more broadly in California, where people don't necessarily want to accept a change when it comes to development in cities or more rural areas. They want to keep it as it was. It's called nimbyism in urban settings. Um, and I think that's probably at play here too in Napa. And so presumably then Mr. Woodbridge is, is far from the only person who's who's run up against this. His case is a loud shot fired, but you hear quieter grumblings from a lot of different people. And I spoke to several winemakers who share Mr. Woodbridge's concerns. But a lot of people do worry about retribution from the county for speaking out. For example, worrying that some of their requests for permits would would be scuttled if they are public critics of Napa County. But they point to a few ways in which Napa is extremely restrictive in what they allow. For example, I spoke with someone who pointed out that Napa is the only winemaking region in the world that does not allow weddings to be held at wineries. There's only a handful of wineries that are allowed to do this in Napa. They were grandfathered in, but by and large, weddings are restricted. Wineries are not allowed to sell merchandise or products other than wine, and they are restricted in selling food for any sort of profit. Uh, so everything requires a permit. The permits are extremely costly and time-consuming and uncertain to get. Uh, and so I think that the cost of doing business as a result is extremely high because of the uncertainty and regulatory process. But as you said before, and I did notice you say it is a rooted business, the, the winemakers have little choice but to, to either grumble or to, to try to litigate. 
That's right. I mean, a lot of people are quietly complaining. Some have chosen to sell or cease operations or expand elsewhere. I spoke to a winemaker who's operated his whole career in Northern California, who's actually stopped and is now doing business in Beaujolais in France. Um, and then we see expansion outside of Napa Valley. So Camus, a very famous winemaker in Napa, has expanded in a county nearby. And the unfriendly business environment is one of the reasons that they did not do so in Napa. You're painting a picture of it being well nigh impossible for some of these winemakers in the face of of all of this, this regulation. Where do you see all this going? A point that people make more broadly about California is that it's become a playground for the rich and that it's very hard to make it in California unless you're a trust fund baby or have a tech IPO and money to play with. And people actually make a very similar point about doing business in Napa in the wine business. They say it's extremely costly to do it and people are taking on a lot of risk to run their business. Now with fires becoming more frequent, it's become much harder to find insurance that's affordable. And many people, including Jason Woodbridge from 100 Acre, are forgoing fire insurance. So if they experience another fire, they could be wiped out. So the perceived overreach and the perception that regulators are making it much harder to operate and the question of the business environment is in some ways one of the last straws for people in an increasingly difficult environment to do business that carries a lot of risk. Of course, it's a business that has some glamour to it and brings a lot of people joy who see the Napa label. But behind the scenes, I think it's a business that's filled with headaches and a growing amount of uncertainty. Alexander, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. We hope you enjoy listening to the intelligence as much as we enjoy making it. We're always thinking of ways to improve, and to do that, we'd like to know more about you. Do us a little favor and fill out a short questionnaire at economist.com slash intelligence survey. The link is in the notes. Thanks. Long-line fishing is a method used to catch tuna out in the middle of the oceans. Boats can drop kilometers worth of line, with hooks and bait connected at discrete intervals. But when hauling in the catch, it's typical for just half the fish to be tuna. The rest can be anything from marlin to albatrosses. But frequently, they're sharks. This type of fishing ruins marine ecosystems and is helping to endanger many shark species. But new technology may present some hope. John, I'd like for you to watch this video with me. Okay, let's do it. Okay, I can see a fishing line with some bait. And there's this silvery shark swimming in to bite it. This is a blue shark. Abby Burdick writes about science for The Economist. It's smelled some long line bait, and it's swimming in for luck. Ooh, it's just bitten down on the bait. And it's thrashing around. It appears stuck on something. It doesn't look good. Yeah, definitely not good news for the shark. This is all too common. With long line fishing, sharks 
and their close relatives, the rays, are at particular risk of getting caught on these lines. You can see that in this second video. Let's see, another long line. There's a ray swimming underwater. Yeah, it's kind of flapping along. It's a beautiful creature, isn't it? But it's attached to a hook. Uh-huh. Now I see it's sort of thrashing around like the shark did. And this time the fishermen were able to release it, but often the ray is not that lucky. Scientists have found that the populations of sharks and rays have declined by around 70% in the last 50 years. A lot of it due to this sort of longline fishing and bycatch. But using a unique quirk of sharks and rays physiology, scientists have found a possible solution. So what is the solution, Abby? Actually, you can see it in this next video. Okay, so the shark went up to the line again. Oh, there's a little, what looks like a little cylinder. And as soon as the shark gets near it, it turns away. Yeah, it almost looks like there's this like invisible field that the shark is running into. Yeah. And then it nopes. It decides, nope, this is not for me. And before it bites, it just... Turns away very quickly. Why does it do that? What are we watching? So this little cylinder is a device called Shark Guard. And what it does is every two seconds, it generates a strong electrical pulse. And normal fish don't care about this electrical pulse. But sharks and rays are part of this group of animals called elasmobranchs. And these animals are able to detect electricity via these small jelly-filled sense organs on their nose. And they're able to sense electric fields generated by potential prey's muscles. When there's a strong enough field, like the pulse of this shark guard, they're overstimulated, and the shark is repelled rather than attracted. So that's what we saw in the video. It seems to work. Does it work consistently? It seems to so far. Some scientists conducted a pilot study to test how well these worked, and the results were quite impressive. So they fitted thousands of hooks with these shark guards and some of them without off of the coast of France. And it turns out the hooks that had shark guards on them caught 91% fewer shark and 71% fewer stingrays than those without it. So it really seems like these shark guards are able to repel both the sharks and the rays. But there was a little bit of a wrinkle in the data. Does the wrinkle involve the tuna? Yes, it does. There were less tuna caught on these boats than you would expect for this time in the season. But these numbers were low both for the shark guard hook and for the control hooks, like the hooks without any shark guard on them. So it's possible that there are other factors at play. It's possible that it was the shark guard and further testing is needed to make sure that the shark guard doesn't also repel the tuna. But even so, this sounds like a promising start, no? It definitely does. Reducing bycatch is a really important thing. It saves fishers time and money. It's better for the ocean. And at the rate that these are effective, it's definitely a potential solution. The shark guards are not too expensive in the scheme of commercial fishing. They're around 10 bucks a pop, and normal long lines have approximately 1,000 hooks on them. So that's only $20,000 a boat, which in the scheme of commercial fishing isn't too much. They're also pretty easy to recharge. The manufacturers have configured it so that you just reel in your lines with all of the shark guards on them. You put them in a bin, and they're able to charge by induction. But just 
looking at the efficacy of this device so far, it's a very, very promising start for a problem that desperately needs solving. All right, Abby, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Don't forget, we want to hear from you in our listener survey. What you like, what you don't, how you listen, the works. Do follow the link that's in the notes for today's episode, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise. Where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem. Where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.